Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, editor-at-large for LARB, and I'm joined remotely today by my co-host, LARB's gender and sexuality editor, Eric Newman. Hi, Kate. Hi, Eric. And today we're speaking with uh, author Richard Seymour about his new book, The Twittering Machine, which is a very brilliant deconstruction of social media and our death drive to engage with it. Yeah, I, I think that one of the things that readers will probably find a bit harrowing and self-shaming as they read this is that it's, I think it's very hard to read, as anybody that uses social media, to read what Richard lays out in his book about kind of our addiction to social media, the kind of destructive impulses and negative impulses that it activates without seeing yourself represented there on the page. I mean, I think that was exactly my experience of reading it and suddenly having this horrific experience of self-recognition. But I think that's also something that points to what's so useful about the book is that it, it dispenses with a lot of the platitudes that we tend to hear about the negative side of social media. And instead, because as you kind of tee up in what you're saying about the death drive, it takes a psychoanalytic approach to our engagement with social media. And I think that that's what made this feel at once like fresh and freshly horrifying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's definitely not a shaming book. It just seems to try to understand why you know we would we would want to use this technology and how it uses us. Um, I think it, there's a really good socio political angle as well. And mm-hmm. I don't feel. I mean, it's true. I'm nominally on social media. I didn't feel so bad about myself. I felt like it shows you you're kind of up against something bigger than yourself. So you're just a pawn, Eric. Don't feel bad. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Though in these days, that's no excuse. You can't just well, go along. <laughs> I guess. Anyways, let's listen to the interview because it's long and very interesting. Let's do it. We're excited to have Richard Seymour on the line with us today. Richard is a writer and broadcaster from Northern Ireland and the author of numerous books about politics, including Against Austerity and Corbyn, The Strange Rebirth of Radical Politics. His writing has appeared in many publications, including The New York Times, The London Review of Books, The Guardian, and Jacobin, as well as his own Patreon website. He joins us today to talk about his latest book, The Twittering Machine, a harrowing dive into the psychodynamics and new realities of our social media, or as Seymour calls it, social industry age. A central claim of the book centers on the social industry's influence over the proliferation of writing, the ways that we constantly contribute our words, ideas, personalities, and fantasies to digital social platforms, and how that writing is shaping and changing us in ways that we are only just beginning to grasp. Welcome to the show, Richard. Thank you for having me. So, Richard, the the title of your book is taken from a painting by the same name um, by the artist Paul Clay from 1922. The painting is called The Twittering Machine. And I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about how you came upon this painting and why it was a very potent symbol for your writing. I mean, I can probably describe it so that people have some idea of what I'm talking about here. So in the painting, you've got a row of stick figure-like birds, and they're clutching an axle, which uh, itself is turned by a crank. You turn the crank to make the birds tweet. Uh, They twitter. And below it, 
And this is how the Museum of Modern Art puts it. The birds are hovering over a reddened pit. And that's the bit. Um, so, or rather the, the, the twittering is the bit and you get lured into, if you like, the pit of hell. And uh, this um, painting was pointed out to me by a friend, um, but the image was striking enough that it could be a useful uh, fecund metaphor um, for sort of getting at what this system is about. Hans Blumenberg, I think, um, wrote a book called Metaphorology, in which, you know, the you know, metaphor is extremely important to explaining things to pedagogy. Um, so I was glad to find this one. But the basic idea uh, is that there is a lore, there is some sort of bait, and then there is hell. Uh, and it's not, I'm not intending this in any sort of moralistic way, uh, you know, to say uh, you must get off Twitter um, and live right and live clean and all the rest of it, because none of us can do that. Um, and as a matter of fact, um, we're to some extent trapped in the system, whether we choose to use the, the, the industry or not. Um, we're trapped in it, and the question is how we can find an oppositional position within it. Much as we're trapped within capitalism and various other uh, forms of system. So, but the point is that in recent years we've been hearing a lot about what a horror story uh, Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and so on are, and that's been tied up with uh, what's been called a liberal tech clash. You know, as uh, the forces of official liberalism have realised that this system which um, they were initially very gung-ho about. You go back to the Clinton and Obama uh, years. They thought this would be a great thing. Uh, they've come to see it as a potentially a very dangerous force. Um, and uh, I suppose the recent documentary, The Social Dilemma, sums up their position, the position of the sort of um, never-Trump Republicans and the uh, middle-of-the-road Democrats who see it as um, harmful to the kids. I wanted to engage with that, but to tell a slightly different kind of horror story, one that isn't about moral panic um, or uh, thinking about the children. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe you could elaborate on that because I, I too, recently watched that film and, um, you know, it, it affected me, but I was I definitely noticed a difference in the way you approach uh, social media and, and not so much a moralistic way, but in a, you know, deconstructive way and trying to figure out exactly how it, how it ticks and who benefits. So maybe talk about where your position of your book differs from that film. Well, um, and, and more generally the tech lash, I would say there's a number of things. First of all, we talk about fake news. When was the era of unalloyed truth-telling on the part of our national and international media? Uh, you know, when did the Washington Post and New York Times and so on not lie to us about Iraq and, you know, various other um, uh, international events? It may not have been uh, myth-making in the same um, fashion as uh, online myth-making about, say, hashtag Pizzagate, but it was extremely dangerous and uh, extremely costly in terms of lives and the damage it did to our politics. And if, frankly, I think if you want to think about where Trumpism comes from, uh, it might have something to do with the toxins of militarism. That aside, there are other issues. Uh, we talk about addiction and the social industry has its own theory of addiction that was presented in the documentary um, as if it were fact. And that theory is that uh, the industry gives us a dopamine buzz. This is how it works. You go on Twitter, you go on your Facebook, you see your notifications, bright red flashing signs saying you've got three notifications and it's like a clickbait headline and it's like, 
You won't believe what these three people have said about you. And you have to click on it and it makes you feel a little buzz and you get very happy about it. And then, you know, you, you become dependent on it. You repeat it enough, you become dependent on it. So they're exploiting, in their terms, uh, a psychological frailty. Now, I don't think that's how addiction works. I don't see that there's much evidence for it. There's a number of reasons why. First, dopamine doesn't give us any kind of buzz. That's um, the consensus of neuroscience at the moment. Um, so that old hackneyed theory of addiction has gone by the wayside. Second, it strips away any sense of agency, any sense in which we are involved in our addictions. And it reduces it to a biochemical trace, much as, you know, you could have a biochemical theory of love. You know, some cheap uh, psychologism says that love is uh, the equivalent of consuming lots of chocolate. Well, maybe in a biochemical sense, that's true. I don't know. But it definitely doesn't say anything significant or profound about love. And I think that's important because addiction, to my mind, is a kind of misplaced form of love. Um, when our love objects disappoint us when the real world, as it is, disappoints us. Um, we become addicted, that is, devoted in the etymological sense to objects that um, allow us to bypass um, society, to bypass uh, talking to other people. Um, and that um, is also um, one of the ways in which I differ from some analyses of uh, social media and the social industry uh, in that they tend to take it for granted that the purpose of this machinery is to communicate, um, to talk to other people. And therefore, you know, the problem is uh, how do we uh, uh, arrest um, online contagions uh, organized by communication? I think that actually quite a lot of what's going on is um, avoiding communication. Um, and you know how this works. If you're ever in a party or, you know, um, at a dinner or something and somebody brings out their phone right in front of everybody and starts tapping away or scrolling through a feed. You're both there and not there. And you're mm -hmm. communicating with somebody who's only there as the sort of ghostly trace. Um, this is a system of writing, and writing is not reducible to a system of communication. Writing has a material structure that exceeds communication. And that was, the, I think, the important point here. You know, um, Richard. On oh, I have so many questions, but um, the let's let's start with this question about writing. When one of the terms that you use throughout the book is the scripturient, right? Yeah. Which you kind of use as a well. First, could you just define that for us and kind of how that captures this particular ecosystem that writing takes place in and proliferates out of from the social industry? Well, the definition of scripturian is you are possessed by a violent desire to write. And I don't think this is inherently a bad thing, by the way. As a writer, I, 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 have, to, <laughs> I have to kind of like this. But it is striking, and it is a reality, that we spend more of our time collectively as, as a human society writing than ever before in human history. Uh, we're constantly at it. It's never been the case before that, we would be in our commutes writing. We would be sitting at the dinner table writing. We would be writing under the desk at work. We would be at school writing in unofficial ways, in ways that the teacher didn't approve of, all of that stuff. But nonetheless, we're constantly doing it now. And uh, you, you, how do we understand this compulsion? And how does writing become an addiction? 
And why this particular form of writing? Well, we know that the way that the social industry, let me just briefly detour on that uh, phrase for a moment. The social industry, I call it that in homage to Adorno's culture industry. Essentially, the idea that social life has been homogenized and uh, programmed in a way that's far more radical than the culture industry uh, ever was. But I can come back to that. So the social industry um, presents you in your feed with uh, an algorithmically managed and refined sort of system of information. Well, this information isn't simply informative and it isn't simply representational. In fact, quite a lot of the time, it's not particularly informative at all. What it is, is it's gut force. It hits you on a somatic level. So that when you see a tweet that really drives you around the bend, and you only have to scroll through your feed for about 20 minutes in the morning or whatever it is, to find two or three things that will destroy your um, patience and sanity for the rest of the day, wind you up completely. And the only catharsis in that situation is to type and to type fast uh, to to uh, explain how you feel about this and to react against what you're seeing that is threatening or uh, unpleasant or whatever it may be that's the uh, that's the offer that it makes you so the system is obviously set up for that for a, a perfectly comprehensible uh, and obvious economic reason. It is based upon data, and the more we interact with the machine, the more data it accumulates about us. So we have an incredible array of things that we can be doing. We could be following monarchs, celebrities. We could be stalking exes. We could be keeping track of our political enemies. Uh, we could be writing to jihadists to figure out whether it's a good idea to convert and go and join ISIS. You know, we could be doing all of this stuff. The industry doesn't really care. But just so long as when you try to do anything, you do it through them. In other words, you write to the machine, you confess your secrets to it, it takes a recording of the message and then passes on the semantic content of it to whomever it was addressed to. Well, see, that's the kind of, that's to me the very interesting kind of psychological um, grip that it has, right? So it becomes both the thing that generates these feelings, right? So you you read a post, you feel outraged or whatever. And the only outlet for that outrage or feeling, it can be a positive feeling also, though usually it's positive in almost a, a violent or extreme way. Yeah. And then it becomes the only outlet for that. I mean, is, is there any way, how could we get out of that kind of loop? Because I see everything that you document in the book, I can, and I think any reader would feel this as well, you will see mapped out there your own encounter with social platforms. Yeah. How do we get out of it? Now, this is a question that you can answer on any number of different levels. Um, I try to suggest some possible political economic alternatives by looking at, for example, Minitel, which was mm. uh, the internet before the internet. Um, and it was you know, limited to France and it was run by the public sector, but it was pretty popular. Um, it had some of the problems that the internet has today, but it wasn't, it wasn't really set up like a giant mall. Uh, in the way that today's internet was. And it certainly wasn't set up to get you addicted um, and to keep you constantly uh, donating your um, personal information um, so that you can be manipulated for advertising. That, you know, that didn't exist. So there are ways of thinking about political alternatives. We can think about alternative funding models. So, for example, it has been suggested in the UK 
that uh, the BBC, which is uh, in principle a public service broadcaster, paid for by a license fee, could set up uh, a publicly owned, well-branded uh, social media platform because the BBC has enormous global reputation um, and you know uh, its branding value is, is very significant. They could set something up that wasn't set up to get you addicted, that wasn't taking your data, um, that just provided some of the um, utilities, if you like. Um, that's another way of approaching it, although the question I have there is, would anybody want to be on it? If they weren't trying to get you hooked, would it be as exciting? <laughs> right, 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 right. The the only other thing I was going to add, of course, is that there's a personal response, and it's a personal response that has to be conducted at the level of meaning and at the level of um if you like, self-care uh, in the way that the ancients spoke about self-care, in the sense of taking your life seriously. You have so much limited time um, to actually live, and addictions work through uh, decisions taken behind your back almost. You almost don't decide to get addicted. You take a number of small steps, just this one cigarette, just this one uh, beer, um, just because I'm feeling bored. And then, you know, somehow cumulatively you find yourself addicted. And so the question is, how can we, how can we take hold of our lives, get an executive view of our lives? For the sake of, you know, having some sense of the scale, I did some numbers. These are really crude back-of-the-envelope calculations. But I figured out that uh, based on um, the figure that was prevalent in 2017, which was that the average global internet user spends 135 minutes a day on social media platforms, which is quite a lot, um, and probably more than people spend uh, seeing friends face-to-face, which means that this is your social life. And based on uh, average global um, life expectancy of 71 years, that's 50,000 of your hours uh, of life that you're going to give away uh, to this industry for nothing. Um, and the question is, you know, just thinking about it in the minimal utopian sense, because you have a right to ask, what else can you be doing with this time? What else could you be doing with your life? And if that, if, if you want to write, and I, I see no reason why not. I like writing. Why not? Perhaps we can find a way to liberate writing from this system which compels you to write everything so fast, so quickly, so and to be so productive. And yet, you know, it's, it's, it's not writing that changes anything. It's not writing that changes even you. It just It's just rewriting the same old unconscious patterns over and over again so that you become a more exaggerated and diabolical version of yourself. Um, I think it would be better if people um, kept diaries and described, wrote down their dreams and uh, wrote short stories and things that, um, you know, things that would give them some sort of recreative pleasure. Um, well, right. well, let me, uh, well, I think, I think the, the difficulty is that people think of social media as a social form. So even though what you're saying, I think is definitely true, um, people uh, encounter it as a place to connect and to connect with others. And um, I think your book is really good at giving kind of historical precedents. You know, people have always been bored. People have always feared kind of moments of lull and what might come. But there's not necessarily a historical precedent for social media because social media in so many ways has replaced public life or become, you know, yeah. con- superseded public life. So I don't even know, you know, I think it, they, they can be very hard to tell apart um, a lot of the time now, you know, that's, I think it becomes a place to 
meet people, to talk to people. And so what do you think about, is that, is that a total illusion? What do you think about that? Oh, it's not an illusion. It's just, I, I think it's highly unfortunate, but we should always be attuned to what the industry is doing for us because we wouldn't be using it if it wasn't offering something. I think there was one of the Twitter founders sort of said when it was launched that essentially this would be like a really useful thing for when there'd been an earthquake or some sort of disaster and you needed to communicate with somebody and the normal social channels had been broken down. Well, the fact is that it's almost as if something like a disaster has happened. I mean, you can look at the data over the years and you can see that um, social life has disintegrated in, in, in many ways. Um, I don't want to sort of over-egg this, but there are clear patterns of declining sociability. And that you can read that uh, both positively and negatively. Positively, in as much as you could probably say that the decline of um, violent crime violent interpersonal crime has something to do with the fact that people are encountering one another physically a lot less. But on the other hand, of course, and you know, I suppose also some of the social drugs that we uh, traditionally take, like uh, booze and fags, you know, these are indexed to sociability. They're about being around people. Well, um, the decline in uh, alcohol and uh, tobacco consumption isn't inherently a bad thing. But it, it just so happens that, you know, around the time of a major crisis of neoliberal capitalism, the global credit crunch and the ensuing metabolization of that crisis by austerity and the reduction of community resources. So there's no longer as much stuff available. You know, think about things like libraries and stuff like that. You know, community resources uh, are now being massively underfunded. Um, think about the paucity of jobs, the scarcities in all sorts of uh, areas. Um, the industry comes along and offers you uh, an abundance, um, which seems to be free because it's not sold to us as work. And um, it's structured, as you say, around sociability. But it's a sociability that is um, obviously uh, scripted and programmed by algorithm. And, you know, I think... Um, the author Kathy O'Neill describes, uh, you know, code as just somebody's um, somebody's opinion that has been automated. So, in other words, uh, a bunch of a fairly small group of people um, in Northern California, usually affluent white men, have worked out what social life should look like, and they've just defined it as a sort of status-oriented pursuit of celebrity, uh, universal competition. Uh, for attention and likes and all the rest of it. And that's the kind of sociability that we've got. And so I I think you're right. I mean, you, it's not so easy to separate writing from sociability at this stage. But I do think that if we can find a way to read our own desire, you know, what is it that's keeping us in there? What is it keep, that's keeping us working? Um, and try to um, separate out what is useful, what we want, uh, what we want to perpetuate from what is actually destroying us. Because one of the most disheartening um, and darkest things about our addiction to this industry is how much addiction has to do with, uh, I suppose in Freudian terms, you would call it the death drive. You know, there's always a sense in which it's just when the machine has turned on you 
It's just when people are um, attacking you and telling you what scum you are um, for tweeting whatever you tweeted. Um, it's just when you're being cancelled. It's just when you're seeing just the, the uh, absolute horror show on the medium that it becomes most compulsive. And so we need to work out not just the, you know, the darkness in this machine, you know, and tell it as a horror story, but rather we have to ask, you know, what is the horror in ourselves and where does that come from? Mm. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded remotely. We've been speaking with Richard Seymour about his new book, The Twittering Machine. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We have Ayad Akhtar on the line with us. Ayad's latest book is called Homeland Elegies, and he's joining us to give us a book recommendation. Ayad, what book are you going to recommend? Uh, Ravelstein by uh, Saul Bellow. Oh, okay. Okay, give me more. Why are you recommending that book? I feel like we've stopped reading Saul Bellow. And I, yes. I you know, I discovered the book a uh, couple of years ago. I, I was a huge, you know, reader of Saul Bellow throughout my 20s and 30s and and uh, loved those books so much, Herzog and, and uh, Seize the Day and Humboldt's Gift and, and, and all of them, Henderson, the Rain King. And had not read Ravelstein. And I just, you know, my, my mom had it at, at the house and I just sort of picked it up one afternoon and started reading. I couldn't put it down. It really is to me of all the Bellow books that I've read, and I've probably read three quarters of them. I mean, I've read most of them. It's really the greatest of them all. Wow. In, in the sense that there's this, I had this experience in reading Philip Roth where I was a huge fan of Philip Roth for so many years, but it wasn't until the trilogy, you know, American Pastoral, I Married a Communist and The Human Stain, that that all of the strands really, for me, came together in such a powerful way and elevated him to, you know, I think the great writer of his generation. And I, similarly, I felt that about Bellow with Ravelstein. I'd, I'd never had the thought before that there was anything missing from Bellow. But when I read this book, there was just such a, the, the lightness of touch, it was almost like listening to Mozart, and the richness of social history married to the precision of character sort of observation the, and the ability to sort of spin a yarn just on a mm. basic level, all of that stuff working in concert in such an economic way and the echoes, the language, the way that he's sort of, you know, playing with and sort of reflects on this almost divine gift that he has for metaphor and, and these extraordinarily rich, sonoral and meaning landscapes that he creates. So I, I can't recommend it enough. I, I love the book. I've read it. I've read it twice already. So, oh wow! Why do you think we've not we're not really reading Bellow that much anymore? I mean, you know, I came to Augie March, I think, in graduate school because, but partly because I had to, not because yeah. I really wanted to. Right. Um, but once I read it, it kind of confused me. It kind of conf- why was it? Because it's not really what you would expect. It kind of confused you because it's in popularity confused me. I didn't. I didn't under because it was funny. It's dynamic. It's it's really skilled. It's really smart. I was confused about why I hadn't read it before. Yeah, it's a good question. I, you know, I, I, there really isn't, I mean, you know, Martin Amos says he's the great American novelist, that he's the greatest of them all. And, and I think there's a, good, there's a good case certainly to be made uh, that he is among those great, great American novelists. I find him 
you know, similar, I was talking in another interview with you all about Shakespeare. I find, you know, I find that reading, reading Bellow is like a real tonic. It, it wakes me up. It wakes up my mm-hmm. language. It wakes up my, my feeling and my thinking. And I, I love reading Bellow, but I think maybe it's, maybe it's the masculinist dimension. And there is, you know, unlike Philip Roth, I think there is less vulnerability on the page, maybe with Saul Bellow. Yeah. There's also the thing about Saul Bellow is that I think he is such an intellectual writer, even though he's an extraordinarily sensual writer. And as you say, a very he's one of the great comic American novelists. So there's huge comedy, but but he's fundamentally driven by ideas, I think, in a way that that even Philip Roth is fundamentally driven by impulses, instincts, and maybe characters. Yeah. Right? And so, I feel like so gets there away is with it, but. there is a distance and a, and a maybe a, just a hint a hint of a lack of vulnerability at times that that makes it maybe harder for people to to feel as attached. But I just it doesn't get better than Bellow at his best. I think in the American language. Well, I think this is a great recommendation. Will you tell us the title of the book again and the author? Ravelstein by Saul Bellow. Thank you so much, Ayad. We've been talking to Ayad Akhtar. His latest book is called Homeland Elegies. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Richard Seymour, author of The Twittering Machine. In a slightly different register, I think that we also get bound to these platforms because, and this is part of the kind of the more liberal vision of what social media is versus the reality of it, um, you know, that it's the ultimate democratizing force, right? I mean, you get into this in the chapter on celebrity, that it's kind of anybody could potentially, so the theory goes, anybody with an internet connection could be a celebrity, right? But one of the things that's quite disturbing, I think. And this I I find more to be the case with the kind of video platforms, so like TikTok, YouTube, and those sorts of things, is this kind of hidden economy behind it that kind of governs much of what and who we see on these otherwise ostensibly, quote-unquote, democratic media platforms, right? So an example of when Vine was popular, I remember watching it and thinking, oh my God, this is amazing. These kids, kind of, you know, random kids that are about high school age can be making, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars, right? And and one such star was Jake Paul, who then uh, you address also. But then when you look at the backgrounds of their videos, they're from palatial homes that are in places like Calabasas and other high-income neighborhoods, Right? And this also gets at the incredible cost in both time and money of producing enough content to quote-unquote make a living as somebody on social media, despite the sale of this thing being like, well, anybody can become a star. It's just about getting your, your voice out there. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that in terms of like who social media serves as a kind of fantasy and like who it's actually serving? Well, that's the, um, uh, the the ideology of the spectacle, isn't it? Uh, mm-hmm. That everything is a lottery and it could be you. Oh, that's right. You bring up the quote from Guy Debord, right? Yeah. Um, and I, I think that that's very powerful because which of us hasn't, uh, particularly when things are a bit tough financially um, or in other ways, fantasized about winning the lottery? You know, what if I just bought a ticket and just think about all the problems that would just be solved immediately? Now, this is not a concrete, practical way of thinking, but 
it has immense power because it seems like any number of problems uh, would be resolved immediately. Now, of course, we know that um, it doesn't really work like that, um, and that you know, even if you win the lottery, particularly with uh, online celebrity, and you can. Um, it uh, can actually be quite a disastrous experience. It can make you absolutely miserable. But yes, on the one hand, you're right that there is this question of, well, how do you have the resources to make yourself a celebrity? Um, it requires an incredible amount of work, an incredible amount of uh, you know financial input to make it uh, you know worth following. You know, it's it, it, in some ways um, the social industry has reduced the cost of communication. But uh, that has only shifted uh, the parameters of, you know, what kind of production values we expect in our communications with one another. So that's one part of the problem. The other part of the problem, of course, is that the industry is dominated by the traditionally dominant uh, media industries, you know, PR, um, uh, sort of uh, big news media, um, Hollywood, you know, um, all these um, large agencies. And then, of course, you know, uh, there's, of course, national states, uh, uh, political organizations, multinational corporations. I think if you were to take all these things together, uh, they would make up the majority of views and shares and likes and so on. So um, the majority of people... Um, uh, I think probably, uh, I'm, I'm sure that I've seen statistics to this effect, that the majority of people on, say, Twitter have fewer than a 1,000 followers, probably much fewer in most cases. So most people aren't really doing anything with real clout. Nonetheless, because people will have a, a certain what, what's called parasocial relationship with you online, they'll form an attachment to you even though you don't know them, uh, as if you were a celebrity, you can have all the um, uh, sort of emotional experience of being a celebrity to an extent in a very diluted way. Uh, you can also, of course, have the backlash. That's why you can be cancelled, even though you're a nobody, because the same, the same drawbacks of celebrity worship syndrome will apply to you as to, as, as to any Hollywood star. Um, so we're all... Yeah, I mean, it's not exactly democratized, but we're, we're all kind of trapped in it to the extent that we're all users. Um, in a way, there is a kind of a, a lottery effect. And uh, that kind of randomness, I think, is part of the addiction. And it seems that the the risk, you know, I I, I guess I'm, I'm not a huge social media user, but I, I'm and I'm also fairly naive about it, I guess, but I, I didn't realize the amount of um, streamed suicides and suicide in general seems to be um, something that happens often to people who either face, you know, awful online humiliation or, you know, who've, who've been doxxed or who've, I yeah. don't know, who, 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 who basically suffered the extremities of, of what these platforms can offer. Um, did you, and, and also, yeah, in the, for instance, in the Social Dilemma, you know, documentary, they make a point about the very, very high rates of suicide now among young girls in particular, um, and, and that they'd skyrocketed at like 180% or some. So is that to you, is, is that the pit that the, the Twittering birds um, are flying above is, is basically doing ourselves in? Is, is that the kind of ultimate consequence of, of 
social media gone wrong? Up to a point, but I think we have to be very, very cautious about this kind of data. I mean, I do um, uh, discuss it because I think it's unavoidable, um, but there's a problem if we assume that correlation equals causation because there are so many things going on in life at the moment that could be driving kids to um, suicidal ideation and behavior. Um, And, uh, you know, I think in, in a way, quite a patronizing paternalistic view uh, promoted by some authors. Uh, I mentioned Jean Twenge in the book, uh, whose work is not uninteresting, but nonetheless, she tends to scold the young. Um, and that's what you get with a lot of this type of writing, you know, for being superficial and narcissistic and, you know, fragile snowflakes hooked on um, their image online. Well, there's an element of truth in that, but is it not also true that the way global events have gone Um, uh, you know, if you're a young person looking at your future, thinking about what's happening with climate change, thinking about the rise of uh, forms of uh, reactionary nationalism tending towards fascism, thinking about um, the uh, explosion of gun violence in the United States and the way that that's um, linked to um, lone wolf killings and all the rest of it. I mean, if you weren't depressed, you would be mad. I mean, that would be the same one. Yeah. You should be depressed. There's a lot to be depressed by. Um, However, it can, you know, it's obvious that if you become addicted to an image of yourself that is not, you know, it's not the real you, how could it be the real you? Um, Even if it wasn't using filters and distortions, various other things, it's uh, it's a snapshot of your face, which is a lure. You know, it's, your face doesn't actually mean anything about you. It's just a, you know, it's either good looking or bad looking. But the point is, it doesn't mean anything. But you can get hooked on that and hooked on the reactions that people have to your face. Um, taken from a particular angle, using particular lighting, um, with a particular kind of makeup, and maybe filtered so that it looks a bit thinner or whatever. Uh, all of that stuff. And the more you get hooked on that, the less you like the residual self, uh, which is the real self. And that, it makes perfect sense that that would be a profoundly depressing and despair-inducing experience. And so, uh, particularly given that, um, the, you know, the social industry is uh, catalyzing existing cultural trends towards the universal commodification of experience, of every aspect of experience, including, of course, you know, uh, incipient teen sexuality, including, you know, uh, everyday social life, um, right down to its nitty gritty details. And of course, as you, as you mentioned there, including suicide and murder and all sorts of the dark sides of life. Well, it makes sense that um, the existing tendencies towards uh, that would be propelling young people towards suicidal ideation, self-harm, and ultimately towards attempts at suicide, um, they would be um, intensified and magnified. And I think that is what's going on here. I'm curious why, if you have any thoughts on why um, we're seeing such a strong backlash in this particular political and global moment um, to social media, if if you think it's just finally, you know, the problems have just finally caught up with it, or is there some under, another underlying reason? I think you could start to see this coming when ISIS emerged around 2014. Because if you look at the social industry, where does it come from? It starts out as a kind of commercial appropriation 
of innovations made by the cyber left. Um, you know, Twitter is essentially based on a, a free uh, social app called TextMob, which was designed specifically for left-wing protesters to be able to communicate in privacy and evade police suppression. It actually did the job. Uh, this was during the 2004 Democratic and Republican conventions. Um, but, uh, you know, Twitter uh, uh, adopted various uh, aspects of this system and uh, commercialized it and so on. Um, but at the same time as they were doing so, they associated themselves with, uh, you know, uprisings that were going on, you know, democratic uprisings, uh, you know, in, in Iran, the Green Movement. I think the State Department was in touch with the Twitter bosses at the time of the Green Movement saying, look, I know you're going to take down your system and do some engineering work, but could you not? Because the there is a Twitter revolution going on in Iran right now. And of course, that phrase um, got into the media, I think, quite likely was promoted by Twitter itself. And you heard all, all sorts of things about in the ensuing years about Facebook and Twitter revolutions. Um, and then, of course, those um, the Arab Spring died back, Occupy uh, died down. Um, you saw, um, uh, you know, the Arab Spring was drenched in blood um, in Syria and Egypt and uh, to an extent in uh, Libya. Um, but also Occupy was, um, you know, it, it, it didn't survive. What did survive or what did start to thrive online and on these platforms, uh, which people had thought were democratizing, were extremely hierarchical uh, outfits, political outfits, starting with ISIS. Uh, they used Twitter far better than um, the cyber left. Um, they were far more savvy about how it worked uh, and that it, it would be hierarchical organizations that would thrive best on it because they would know how to use its um, protocols, which are designed for hierarchy and speed. Then, of course, you had uh, two big events in the Anglo-American world, uh, 2016, Brexit, um, uh, the Brexit vote in the United Kingdom, driven by the radical right, uh, very much involving online efforts, um, uh, you know, reaching people in ways that traditional political communications could not, and, you know, reaching people uh, at the level of uh, utter irrationality um, uh, and incitement to racial hatred. And, of course, the Trump election um, and its use of uh, online um, uh, communications, very efficient use of online communications, to excite and polarize and radicalize the right-wing base. So uh, I think you can see elements of that. And then, of course, there's uh, inevitably the aspect of geopolitical co uh, conflict. You know, uh, Obviously, there's an, uh, there's an element of exaggeration in the stuff about Russiagate, Putin, and all the rest of it. But it's fair to say that the Russian state invests heavily in troll armies, as does the United States government, as does the British government, as does dozens of states throughout the world. And so that conflict has led to, um, in a sense, the way that it's been mediated by the social industry has led to a lot more vigilance about the social industry. Ironically, the same states which are trying to exploit it are also trying to warn people that they may be subject to foreign propaganda. Um, and I think it's a kind of digital uh, nationalism that we're seeing um, to an extent around that. Well, uh, Richard, if I can follow up on this, because this I find very fascinating. For example, you have the um, the way that uh, conspiracy theories like QAnon, most famously, right, um, kind of they're they're you know nationalist in in a sense, but they also 
seemingly go very quickly because of the way that social media circulates um, international, right? So you have like people in uh, Europe kind of protesting, uh, and specifically in England also, in London, protesting about chemtrails and all kinds of stuff because of kind of uh, American-based theories about some new world order and how it's going on with the Trump election. And I'm, I'm wondering if, is part of the reason why these things become so sticky and kind of get inflamed so quickly, even though they are based on on lunacy, mm-hmm. um, is that you live in your own world on these social platforms. So it's it's not only your own kind of affective world of emotions and feelings, but also your own narrative world of like, this is how my external world is constructed. I mean, can you talk a little bit about that, this kind of very odd to me, like closed yet quite porous ecosystem that foments ideas through the types of writing that you're talking about on social media? That's going to require some unpacking. Let me see. Um, I think that in terms of the international appeal of QAnon, I think the first thing to say is that this is uh, a natural and logical extension of the Americanization of global culture. And I don't mean that in a sort of parochial, resentful way. It just, I mean, the whole point of um, the internet the whole point of um, Bill Clinton championing the internet and then the Obama administration championing it was that it was supposed to be um, an extremely effective mechanism for globalizing American culture, um, which has been going on for decades, uh, far more um, uh, potent in a way than Hollywood. Um, And so what has happened is that uh, cultural formations that uh, spring up in the United States uh, you know, appear in other parts of the Anglosphere uh, very, very quickly and then percolate out uh, beyond that. So it's not surprising to me that QAnon um, has appeared in the United Kingdom and in London we've had big, big anti-lockdown protests organised by anti-vaxxers um, and people, you know, people who don't really have much of a social base in the United Kingdom. You know, there's plenty of sources of, uh, uh, if you like, indigenous reaction here, plenty of them. But anti-vaxxers has always been a fairly small cohort here. But you've seen anti-vaxxers, you've seen the chemtrails people, you've seen 9-11 truthers, which had a bit more of a basis here. Uh, You've seen all of that stuff. I think you say it, it might have something to do with people being, uh, if you like, locked in these uh, insular worlds, you know, their own little world. What I would say is, although there's a, a sort of theory that, uh, you know, we're, we're all stuck in, um, you know, these um, echo chambers, I don't think it's quite like that. What I think it is, is there's a lot of talk today, particularly on parts of the left, about lived experience. That's become incredibly fashionable over the years. Lived experience is the validator of any claim you could possibly make. So if you don't have the lived experience of such and such, you have no right to be talking about it, for example. But as it happens, lived experience um, is entirely unreliable as an index of what's going on in the world. Lived experience is already penetrated by ideology. If you want to know what this is like, you can try and have a conversation with a hardline racist, with somebody who really believes in racism, and they will be able to describe to you with all uh, sincerity and passion events that you know for a fact couldn't have taken place. 
because they've seen it. I've seen in this country, I, I met people talking about, for example, saying I've seen black people get to the front of the line uh, to get welfare, to get unemployment benefits, to get housing, all that stuff. I mean, it's complete and utter nonsense. It's lunacy. But the, whatever they saw, they saw something and, you know, they, they're, they have already experienced it in that way. And I think that what the social industry has done has it's not exactly locked us in echo chambers because of course we can always see stuff on the online that we disagree with and don't like um but rather that it's um made us more like the kind of asocial monadic beings that neoliberal ideology imagines us to be uh made us more uh, wrapped up in our own uh sort of repetitive thought processes and and atomized from each other right yeah, atomized might even be an inadequate word for it at this stage. I think it's gone mm. way beyond that. Um, right. Because, <laughs> that, you know, that, but the thing about atomization is that it implies that there is um, um, such a thing as a solitary individual. But what, what the social industry does is it breaks us down even further into enterprises, accounts, you know, which is a neoliberal dream world in which we are just so many bundles of capital, which we can, you know, cognitive capital, physical capital, erotic capital, we can put it into circulation and uh, receive uh, an income from it. Um, and therefore, we are a bundle of enterprises, uh, you know, so there's no such thing as a, you know, a, a sort of traditional, if you like, bourgeois personality. That, I think, is kind of one of the things that might be lurking behind the craving that we're seeing for authority that is manifesting in things like QAnon, the craving that you see among people pushing hashtag no fab or hashtag trad wife. You know, the idea that we can reinstate some sort of sexual repression and that, you know, this will put an end to the chaos um, that is making them so miserable. But, uh, you know, so I think that uh, the, these things might be related in some fundamental way. Well, there's there's so much to talk about and um, we could go on and on. I guess uh, I, I might close by asking you um, if your social media consumption has changed at all because of the book. Um, and if, you know, in part you were you're writing it for that reason, if you, if you wanted to change the way the way you lived in writing it. Well, um, I should say that I didn't write this book from any, and this is relevant to your point, I didn't write this book from any high-polluting sort of point of scorn or denunciation because everything, every bad thing, every bad behavior that I describe, I've done it. You know, I've been the asshole online trolling. Uh, I've been the vigilante going after some celebrity for saying some bad thing and being an idiot about it. You know, I've done all the bad stuff. Um, and I'm 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 very, every much every bit as much an addict as everybody else. Did it change therefore my relationship to the social industry? It consolidated some thoughts that I was already having. I was aware that everything about me that is already, if you like, assholeish, um, was being catalyzed and magnified <laughs> by this industry. You know, because we like you know uh, we all have our our badness, our darkness, and bits of us that are not particularly likable. And, you know, in, in ordinary civilized society, if you like, we do a good job of covering that stuff up and keeping it to ourselves, which I think is a good thing. Um, on the internet, we don't. And I thought that was interesting, and I wanted to figure out why do I feel compelled to lash out at people online, for example? Why do I feel compelled to say the worst possible thing that comes into my mind because somebody's made me angry? You know, or something like that. 
I think what it's done is it's um, encouraged me to have a more professional attitude to social uh, to social industry platforms, and uh, this is something that I you know I'm uh, active on the left wing of the political spectrum, and I you know when I talk to people on the left, I urge them to have this kind of professionalized attitude. And what I say is, um, if you were going to talk to the right wing media, Fox News or something, or you know in this country um, like the Sun newspaper or something. Would you go and start by telling them all your darkest secrets and uh, blurting out all your worst possible uh, feelings about the world? Or would you be a bit circumspect and would you use it to push your own message if you felt that that was a strategically wise thing to do? And that's how I think I've tried to relate to social media now, um, respecting the fact that it is not like a pub. It's not like sitting around with your friends at a pub table where you can just say anything and it's cone of silence and there's no judgment, all of that stuff. That's not what it's like. Even when you think you're in some sort of state of relative privacy because you're just talking to friends on a thread, nobody's going to read it. You know, it's not privacy at all. It's very much in the public sphere. Everything that is on the internet can um, go viral, anything. And, you know, the potential audience for anything on the internet is the whole internet. And so, you know, this is just a function of how networks work. So I, um, these are lessons I had to learn hard for myself. Um, but also, I've, I wanted to liberate my writing uh, from the constant imperative to be productive. I find that, uh, I mean, if, if you want to produce anything that's worthwhile, you need time, you need concentration, you need to go deep into it. And the commercial imperative of uh, the social industry is to force you to be uh, hyper-productive. And if you, if you are a working writer, there's already enough of that. You know, you know, you've got to write a column, you've got three days to write it, maybe that's not enough. Maybe you've got a few hours to write it and that's not enough. So um, adding the social industry's sort of uh, temporality to that uh, is a big mistake. So, um, yeah, what I, what I try to do is to avoid that uh, whenever I feel that I'm bored or whenever I'm getting, you know, doing something and I'm finding it difficult, there's the impulse to reach for the phone, to uh, flick into a, a, a one of the social industries platforms and look for the notifications. And if I notice myself doing that, I try to pull out of it. And I think that that's a, a discipline. Actually, it's a discipline that could be useful in all sorts of areas. But ultimately, to me, and the reason why I use a psychoanalytic idiom uh, in this book is you can only really start to problematize your relationship to these platforms and the way that they're using you if you get to the to the root of what it means to be doing what you're doing. And that's a very subjective thing. It's rooted in personal history as much as it is in political history. Uh, and that takes a lot of time, a lot more time than you have if you're on Twitter. <laughs> Well, I think that's very, very sound advice and you've given us great things to think about. So thank you so much, Richard, for speaking with us. Uh, no problem at all. I'm very glad to do it. Thanks a lot and congratulations on the book. It's really great and I highly recommend folks read it. Oh, thank you so much. We've been speaking with Richard Seymour, author of The Twittering Machine. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. 
That will help us get the word out, and we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the Lab Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. The executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broughton. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vlotten. The publisher and editor-in-chief of the LA Review of Books is Tom Lutz. 